only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding I'm going to say something that I'll be saying a lot in the next year or two. Turn to the book of Romans. <laughs> uh, unless I finish it in a couple of weeks, which I doubt. <clears throat> Page 939. Today, we're just going to introduce uh, the book, the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. Not completely, uh, the average introduction of which I've read some 10 or 15 is 20 to 30 pages, you know, uh, in introducing everything about Romans. And we could spend weeks introducing Romans, but I'm going to try to uh, share that material as we go, come to, to different things in the book of Romans. Uh, but this morning, read from chapter 1 and chapter 15, because these two sections are really connected because they explain something of Paul's situation, which we're going to talk about, and a, a bit about his relationship to the Roman church. The Roman church, as, we, as best we understand, was begun not by a, an apostle. Uh, there were people from Rome on the very first day at Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out, and it's possible that some of those people helped to begin the church in Rome. Also, Rome, of course, was a place where everybody went eventually, as we say, all roads lead to Rome. And so the military moved about, officials moved about, merchants moved about. People converted through the gospel in Paul's earlier ministry ended up in Rome. And it's likely that the Roman church began in the synagogues and as we'll talk about due to a persecution and the like, it got more and more separated from uh, the synagogue and more and more dominated by uh, the Gentiles, actually, by the time Paul wrote this letter. So the church had been in existence for some years, and Paul writes this letter, and it's unusual because this is a letter written to a church he had never been to before, uh, or a group of churches he had never been to before. Uh, it's at a pivotal place in his life, and in the process as well, he gives us the most sustained theological uh, argument anywhere in all of his works, uh, a truly glorious letter, arguably one of the most influential letters in the history of Western civilization and the world. So a great privilege that we can delve into this and seek to grapple with it. Um, so we begin now with verse 8 of chapter 1 of Romans. After uh, his greeting in the first seven verses, first, 
I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I've mentioned you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And everybody agrees that sets the theme uh, uh, for the whole book of Romans, verses 16 and 17. Now, if you will, turn to the 15th chapter. Having completed a section that goes from chapter uh, 12 to 15, 13... Paul really resumes speaking to them in a personal way, talking about his plans. In the first chapter, he talks about how he wants to come to them, so he enlarges on this and gives us more details about it. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, that is to do original work, you see, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain." And to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings." When, therefore, I have completed this, 
and have delivered to them what has been collected. I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, bless us as we seek to understand this great letter of the Apostle Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called by you, Lord Jesus, to proclaim the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you separated him out, that you gifted him, that you equipped him by your Holy Spirit, that you revealed yourself to him so wonderfully. And that, Lord, you used him truly to see the world changed. Lord, it is all your grace. It is all your mission. It is all your spirit. It is all the result of your reign in heaven. It is truly that which you said that if I go to be with my Father, you will do these works and greater works shall you do than I have done. O Lord, your great works were reserved to be accomplished from the right hand of the Father through your faithful people in this world. We thank you. We thank you and praise you that we can be a part of that train, a part of the light of the world that is bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ by word and deed to a dark world. Bless us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, imagine that you are Paul the rabbi, Paul the zealot, raised in Tarsus, way up there in Asia, and that you, hearing of the terrible strife in Judea, come there to support your fellow Jews in eradicating this new movement that claims that this man, crucified on the cross, obviously cursed of God, and claiming to be Messiah, that there is a group that has arisen that is setting forth this one as the Messiah of the Jews and proclaiming him among the Jews. So Paul, who calls himself zealous for the law, and many think he was a zealot, which means that he possibly would have advocated violence in support of Jewish political aims. A zealot who believed that if he, in his righteousness and other zealots and the nation as a whole, would be righteous before God, would stand, before, stand for Yahweh and stand for the laws of God and the traditions of Israel, over and against all comers, then they could see the Messiah enter this world. The Messiah come and set up the kingdom by which the Gentiles would be vanquished and subjugated and the the Jews would be the rulers of the world. That was the longing of the Jews. 
for Messiah to come and set things straight. And Paul viewed himself as a zealot, uh, that he was blameless in the law, that he was living righteously before God. And it was part of his calling, interestingly, to call Israel to righteousness and to set the stage for the very coming of Messiah to wipe out this movement that claimed that this man was Messiah. How could it be? Messiah, no, when Messiah comes, the kingdom of God will be set up on the earth. When Messiah comes, the Jews will reign and the Gentiles will be subjugated. That's what will happen when Messiah comes. And they're now setting forth a man who is hung on wood, hung on a tree. It is proclaimed that anyone hung on a tree is cursed of God. And now they're saying this cursed man is the Messiah. Nothing could be more offensive. And so, as he himself said, he supported the stoning of Stephen. He held the garments. He was on the road to Damascus to seek to find saints wherever he could to find those who named the name of Jesus Christ and to throw them into prison, to have them killed, to completely wipe this movement out for the sake of Yahweh, for the sake of the coming kingdom of God, for the sake of the ushering in of the age of Messiah through his zealous righteousness. I, I know it's not you know, accurate to because God is infinite in his wisdom, but at least the thought crossed my mind of the Lord's contemplation of what would be his first words to Paul on the road to Damascus. At least it's kind of interesting, you know, to, I mean, is, is he going to say, I am the Lord Jesus? You know, is he going to say, I am the one, you know, what would his words be? Nothing could have been more shocking. Nothing could have driven the point home more horribly and and nothing could shatter Paul more than to be cast down on the road to Damascus in a blinding light and a voice from heaven saying to him, Why are you persecuting me? How could that register anywhere in your psyche for Paul? A voice from heaven that should be God's voice from heaven, the Lord's voice from heaven speaking to you, and the Lord is saying, you're persecuting me. And so this, of course, was the beginning of his shattering conversion. The voice of the Lord himself realizing as God reveals himself through Christ that he is alive, that the Father has put his honor upon him, that the Father has put the sign of his complete support and approval upon this Lord Jesus Christ, this Jesus Christ, and made him Lord and exalted him at the right hand of God. He's put his approval on everything he did and accomplished, saying he is from God, and now he is Lord over all. And what an upheaval for Paul, as he, in his zealous righteousness, comes to the realization that the Messiah came 
And the Messiah died for his lack of righteousness. Talk about your world turning inside out and upside down as you're seeking in zeal to bring in the kingdom through your own righteousness. And you realize the Messiah had to die for your sins. And it was through that death, that horrible crucifixion, being cursed by God, but cursed by God on behalf of sinners, Jew and Gentile, that he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And that the reign of Messiah has begun, but it's not a reign in which Jews would be exalted over Gentiles. It's a reign in which Jews would take the gospel to Gentiles and die themselves for the sake of the Gentiles. The revelation of Christ, he talks about it as his call to minister to the Gentiles. It was a call ultimately to spend his life for the Gentiles. How different could that be from his conception of how the kingdom of God would look on earth. No, Paul, you are going to be so transformed by the love of Christ, as he himself later says, the love of Christ, the love of Messiah. The love of Messiah governs me. And that's why I spend myself and die daily for the sake of the Gentiles. And so... To be, this, this Jewish zealot, this Pharisee, now to be a minister of the gospel to those Gentiles. I think that's kind of funny. <laughs> you know, there's kind of a, this sense of humor in God. In the sense of saying, I'm going to take the least likely person who would spend his life for the sake of Gentiles. And I'm going to make him a lover of these people. That's the guy I'm going to take, and and he's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so, in his gospel, there is judgment pronounced. Judgment pronounced upon anyone who would refuse this Messiah. But, what is proclaimed, as he does in Athens in Acts 17, is that the Lord is the Lord of history... And there, this coming judge is also now the Savior of the world. And so now, instead of the zealot expectation of the subjugation and judgment of the Gentiles under the Messiah's immediate rule, he proclaims that the Jewish Messiah actually became a servant and he suffered and died for the sins of Gentiles and the sins of Jews for the sins of the whole world. And it is so unlikely, this gospel is so unlikely to have success among Jews and Gentiles. It's ready-made to be despised and hated and ridiculed for what everyone, Jew and Gentile, will regard as a most pathetic Savior. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 1. But as he says also, and he says here, this gospel, this gospel that proclaims one who is cursed by God and raised from the dead, 
It is the power of God for salvation. In it shines the very glory and majesty of a God whose love is beyond knowledge, whose love lavishly spends itself for the worst of people, who humbles himself and serves those who despised him, as he says in Romans 5. It's unbelievable. Nobody could imagine a God who would love like this. And when the glory of that gospel breaks into a person's life, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And it's so wonderful that the very writer of this great letter, he himself is a client. (laughs) The Rogaine commercial. Last thing the guy says, and I am a client. (laughs) Paul would say, I'm a client. It has transformed me. And I want to set that before anyone here to say, and and by the way, there's... Hardly a greater, more a, a greater apologetic tool or fact. Apologetic mean that we uh, an argument or a defense of the faith than the conversion of Paul. What do you do with this? What do you do with a, a rabbi, uh, a Pharisee, a zealot bent on destroying the church? who then for the whole of his life spins himself and finally dies for the sake of the one he was going after. What happened? How could it be? And his claim over and over again, Christ appeared to me. And he was turned radically around and he, it was so radical, all the disciples were scared of him. They didn't trust him. <laughs> they weren't going to go around Paul. They had to be convinced that this was real. Not just to guise to throw them into jail. And so as we come to this book of Romans, I think of what F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says about it. After talking about five giants, Augustine, Luther, Wesley, and others who've been changed by the book of Romans, he says that its impact has not been confined to such giants since, quote, very ordinary men and women have been affected by it too. Indeed, Bruce goes on, there's no saying what may happen when people begin to study the letter to the Romans. So let those who've read thus far be prepared for the consequences of reading further. You have been warned. (laughs) Because it is the power of God for salvation. And salvation, brothers and sisters, means transformation. It means a change in your whole view of life, your change in your motives, and change in the way you see yourself and the way you see God, the way you see other people, the way you see all of life. A transformation in your ability to live and to love. Utter trans. The power of God. Is, is there any limit to that? The power of the God that made the world. This God. Now, this is the power. Simply have to fall on their face and say, save me. I trust you. I depend entirely upon you. I have nothing to bring to the table. For those people who believe, it is the power of God for salvation. Who knows what it will do. And so I... I would say at the outset, 
let's don't get into this book full of rich doctrine and think we're just going to make it a doctrinal study, intellectual study. We're going to learn all the you know, truths of Scripture, delineate them and compare them and fill our heads with stuff, and that way we'll be able to beat up on the Methodists and the Baptists too, <laughs> by the way. Found out long ago that uh, Reformed faith does not necessarily change nasty personalities. Sometimes it's a cover for them. It really is. Sometimes it's a cover. And I was one of those for quite a while, actually. But it is being proclaimed by one who himself is transformed. And he sets it forth as what I'm about to say is power. Power for salvation. Power for transformation. So that's our first point. Paul, Paul's transformation. That's just woven into this whole book. It is spoken by one who said in Corinthians, we, we believe, therefore we speak. We believe, therefore we speak. He said in another place that uh, in Corinthians that he... He's so concerned that lest he speak the gospel to others and and he himself be adakimos, that is, cursed. He said, "I, I strive, 1 Corinthians 9, I strive so that I won't be one who proclaims this gospel as though I'm just an empty sieve and the information is going out to others and they happen to be transformed by that gospel, but I myself would have ignored that gospel. Even the Apostle Paul, that concern that he not be transformed by the very message that he preached. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. How much more us that we not take this great, glorious work full of such rich teaching and make it out to be just an intellectual thing. It is the power of God for salvation. Just a little bit then about Paul's situation. If, uh, if we had overheads and screens in here, I would suddenly flash uh, the Mediterranean Sea up to you. But you just have to imagine it on the window here, okay? Uh, but let's say here is uh, Gibraltar, right? Where Morocco and Spain meet eight miles apart, Okay. You see that? Eight miles. All right. Now, we come way over here to where uh, Jerusalem is. And, of course, down here uh, on the south end, uh, uh, Egypt, uh, Libya, Algeria, Morocco. And up here, Greece, Italy, France, Spain. Okay? Got it. Geography lesson. Now, Paul, in his first three missionary journeys, had reached Turkey... We know modern-day Turkey and Greece, which is the, the first big thing that sticks out of there. Okay? Turkey comes out this way, Greece. The next thing we know is the boot of Italy. Now, by the time you get to Rome, you're two-thirds of the way west in the Roman Empire. Okay? So, at this point, on his third missionary journey, he's got a three-month stay in Corinth. 
and he's about to go to Jerusalem. We read of this offering in 2 Corinthians 8 through 8 and 9. This is a huge thing for Paul, this offering to Jerusalem, because he wanted to help seal the bond between Jew and Gentile. He wanted to demonstrate the Gentiles' love of the mother church and their fellow Christians who were Jews and to help bring about more and more unity. That's why he has, as we read, he's asking for the Romans to pray for him because he knows the danger of going to Judea. And it did prove dangerous. Say for God's providence, he would have been killed when he took that gift there. And in fact, he did end up in Rome, as some of you know, he ended up in Rome as a prisoner. He did get to Rome, but he was in prison in Rome. And from there, as he talks about in Philippians, he had a great influence uh, among the Praetorian Guard. So, here's Paul finishing up, you might say, if you put the Roman Empire in four quadrants, the northeast quadrant, he said, I've finished that part. The gospel is planted in the northeast of the Roman Empire. I want to go now to the northwest section, to Spain. So he writes this letter. The, the occasion of the letter is the fact that as he's going to Jerusalem, his next plan is to go to Spain. And he wants the support of the Roman church. And he wants their, he's already asking for their prayers. And he wants to uh, meet with them. He wants to have fruit among them. He wants to be refreshed in fellowship with them, to preach the gospel among them. Uh, and then to be sent on by them to Spain. Some have said he wanted to use the Roman church much as he used the Antioch church as his base of operations. He kept returning to Antioch in those missionary journeys. That was his home church, okay? And so Rome would be his new home church as he ministered to the West. So this is really, in a sense, a missionary letter. It asks for prayer, it asks for support, and it announces, I'm coming to visit you. <laughs> so it's very much like, you know, we might get a missionary letter. What's been striking, as people say, is that why couldn't he have left out the whole middle part, which is the great body of what he wrote, which is this rich laying out of the gospel from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 15, verse 13. Well... Part of it, at least, is the fact that he must introduce himself and his gospel to this Roman church. Perhaps, as some have suggested, this he didn't know what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. What better thing as a twofold purpose to plant that gospel in a written form, to put it among the chief city of the Roman Empire. Also, though, We'll see as it unfolds. He had a desire to see in the church all through the Mediterranean uh, basin and in Rome in particular, Jew and Gentile united for the glory of God. So, it's introduce himself to verify the gospel, perhaps in some ways even to rehearse his defense in Jerusalem. Put it all on paper. Ask for prayer. Uh, multiple purpose, but this is the historical uh, situation. He even uh, anticipates criticism that 
may be against some things he teaches and even known criticism uh, of him in the past as he writes to the Romans. Now, because this uh, book is... This letter is so complex in its purposes and intent because it's at such a dynamic time in Paul's career as he's winding out, winding up this huge ministry in the eastern part of the empire. And now to make this final contribution to cement, hopefully, the relationship between Jew and Gentile and then move on to the West. You see, this is a huge turning point, pivotal uh, time in Paul's ministry. Because of the dynamic of it, the church has struggled over the years as to what the central theme is, what the main point is in the book of Romans. At the time of the Reformation, especially against the backdrop of the Catholic Church and its emphasis on works, justification by faith in chapters 3 and 4 especially came to the forefront. And it was looked upon as everything else is just kind of a working out of justification by faith. So because of the historical circumstance. That was thought to be the whole message, basically, of Romans. Then it was thought that, no, it's about the fellowship that we have with God, which is described in verses 5 through 8, so that justification by faith is glorious, but look what it ushers us into. Now we have peace with God. Now there's no condemnation. Now we are children in the Spirit. Now we groan for the new creation. Now nothing will separate us. You could say, yeah... Boy, there's nothing more glorious than those chapters that describe our life with God through the Spirit. But then others say, look, the mention of Jew and Gentile is is just, it dots the landscape all the way through. And then finally, he zeroes in on Jew and Gentile in chapters 9 through 11. And so really this whole gospel is about the relationship of God's people. It's it's about uh, how the gospel has affected us together. And then ushering from that, there's the practical living section in chapter 12 with that glorious beginning statement that we become living sacrifices up to God. And I would set before you this contention that all of it is gospel, okay? It's all gospel. And if you want to say what this book is about, what this letter is about, let Paul set it for you, verses 16 and 17. It's gospel. Gospel that brings you into a relationship with God. Gospel that enables me to live in relationship with God. Gospel that teaches me how to view my relationship with one another and live out my relationship with God's people. Color it all gospel. The gospel is complete and rich. It applies to every aspect of life. It is not to be thought of in a small way. It is not to be thought of as just forgiveness, as just this, as just that. It goes on forever. It is boundless. It is a revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. It is full of Christ. It is all about Christ. It is brimming with Christ. And so its glory goes on in every direction. It becomes our foundation. It becomes our whole hope for the future. It is the full resource so that now we give ourselves up to God and we give ourselves away freely to others after the pattern of Christ and of Paul himself. It's a turnkey operation, so to speak sealing us with God and with one another and then taking us and making us instruments as Paul was an instrument. In a different way, yes, but as basic instruments to bring the gospel to other people. 
And that's why uh, the statements about this book are, are, are so wonderful. Um, for instance, Luther himself, uh, transformed uh, by this gospel, uh, says, speaks of the passage of Paul, the righteousness of God that became to me a gateway to heaven. Or John Calvin wrote this, Anyone that gains the knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. That's exciting to think about. If I get into this epistle and learn this epistle, it opens up the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Luther called it the chief part of the New Testament. Tyndale says, As much as this epistle is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, the most pure evangelion, gospel, that is to say glad tidings and what we call gospel, also a light and a way into the whole Scripture. He called it a light and a way into the whole Scripture. I think it meet that every Christian man not only know it by rote and without the book, but also exercise himself therein ever more continually as with the daily bread of the soul. I love that. By rote and without the book. <laughs> you quote it with nothing in front of you. You just know it by heart. He urged it upon people to know by heart. The, the French commentator Godet who has one of the most marvelous commentaries of the 19th century. Oh, St. Paul, had your one work been to compose the epistle to the Romans, that alone should have rendered thee dear to every sound reason. We don't have time, but I'll give it in the future of others. Uh, the translator into modern Romanian, uh, how he, during this translation, got to Romans and was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ through the book of Romans. May God transform us as we study it. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for giving us this letter by your Holy Spirit, by raising up the Apostle Paul, by presenting this very historical situation in which he was compelled to write it. And to think of this letter then being such a critical part of the transformation of Western civilization and even the world, the truth that it sets forth. Oh, Lord, we praise you for it. And we pray that you would open up our hearts to receive this gospel, this power of God for salvation. We pray, Lord, that even as we enter into this study, as we give ourselves to it in these next uh, months, Lord, that you will change us by it. We will not read it simply for information, but we will read it humbly. We will hide it in our hearts. We will pray over it. We will apply it to our hearts. We will, Lord, give ourselves up to it, asking for the Spirit to bless us in it. Oh, Lord, come to us, enrich us, transform us. For we are lost apart from you, and apart from you we can do nothing. We thank you that this promise is for everyone who believes, who helplessly depends upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, bless us. In his name we pray. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. 
please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?